question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Is Vancouver's Chinatown set to become the next Yale town? I'm talking with longtime anti-poverty activist Gene Swanson about the quickening rate of condo tower development and gentrification in Chinatown and the downtown east side. And in the second half of the show, I'll be discussing the end of Vancouver's independently owned festival cinemas with co-owner Leonard Shine. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. The Carnegie Community Action Project is sounding the alarm on the movement of real estate capital into Chinatown and the approval of many new condo towers. And the neighborhood is already looking very different uh, than it did just only a few years ago. We see high-end boutiques, uh, a number of trendy and expensive restaurants, and um, designer furniture stores popping up um, along the Main Street corridor. So what's in store for Chinatown and the downtown east side? I'm talking right now uh, next with Gene Swanson, and I caught up with Gene to chat about the approval of a number of condo towers uh, coming into the neighborhood and what this will mean um, for the already rising rents um, of, low, of, of existing low-income housing and the possibility um, that it will disappear um, if it's not preserved and the city works to do that. Um, so we're going to turn now to Gene Swanson. Can you... Can you first outline some of the concerns that um, the Carnegie Community Action Project has with uh, rezonings and redevelopments coming forward or have or that have already been approved in Chinatown? Yeah, there's 561 new condo units that are proposed for Chinatown over the next year or two. This is more than Woodward's. With Woodward's, we've got 125 units of, of welfare rate social housing. With these Chinatown units, we're getting 11. What's worse, there are 388 units in privately owned and society owned hotels and apartment buildings that are now relatively low rent. 
And with those 561 condos going in, property values are going to go up, taxes are going to go up, rents are going to go up, and low-income people are going to be displaced. And this city has done nothing, nothing to protect these people. It could end up homeless. Right now... Uh, the city... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Has a, the city has a downtown Eastside housing plan that says that the rate of change should be for every one condo built, there should be one unit of social housing built. But in Chinatown, over the next couple of years, the ratio is not going to be one-to-one. It's going to be 51 condos to one welfare rate social housing unit. And and why is Chinatown not being considered within, this is the downtown east side Oppenheimer district, is that correct? Chinatown is in the downtown east side, but it is one of eight sub-districts in the downtown east side. The Oppenheimer area is another sub-district. And, but just to to uh, further question on your point, it's this one to one is not being uh, recognized or respected because, for what again, for what reason? You'll have to ask the council. Yeah. I have no idea. They don't care. I guess. Also, right now, the downtown east side is undergoing a local area planning process. Can you um, give me a, a brief update on where that's at? And, and um, council has said that these a number of these rezonings that have come through were initiated before the local area planning process was underway, and therefore they can be approved. Um, what's your response on that as well? Well, they have said that but approving them is going to destroy the character of the low-income and the assets of the low-income community. What else can I say? There's a lot of good things about the downtown east side as a sense of community. People who are marginalized in other places don't feel judged, they feel accepted. There's a sense of belonging. Uh, there's a sense of working for social justice, there's a real appreciation of diversity. Uh, the acceptance is huge, and all that's changing with condos. Uh, the other aspect is not just housing, it's stores. Uh, in the downtown side, before gentrification, there were stores that low-income people could afford to go to. Now that's changing places where haircuts used to be $8, they're $50 because the new businesses that are going into these gentrified condos are all upscale. And they hire security guards and police to keep low-income people away. Are, are you feeling that council and, and city staff are seen are arguing that Chinatown is um, completely distinct from um, the, the downtown east side low-income community? Is that the sense that you're getting? 
They are arguing that, but there are a lot of low-income people that still live in Chinatown, including low-income Chinese, people of Chinese ancestry. Right. And they're not acknowledging the impact of gentrification on these people. When you make when you make the point about displacement by um, the the loss of um, and the rising rents um, at SROs, is this is this a challenging argument because they'll argue that it's not direct displacement, um, which is seen is is that where some of the debate is around as well? These new buildings going in are not directly displacing people, therefore this is not displacement. You try that. That's, yeah, they tried it. Is, that's part of their logic? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've noticed dramatic changes, as I'm sure everyone has in parts of Chinatown, very high-end boutiques and stores and restaurants going in. Um, but a lot of people uh, tend to say that this is about social mix. Um, what's your response to that? Social mix is a euphemism for destroying the low-income community. Um, this is a community that fought for and won the only safe injection site in North America. This is a community that had to occupy a police board meeting in order to get the police board to put out the same reward for the missing women that it put out for garage robbers on the west side. This is a community that had to fight for seven years to get a community center like other people have. This is a community that had to camp out on a beach for a whole summer in order to get a waterfront park like other communities have. This community has a history of fighting for human rights. And if the city destroys that by condifying the whole thing and displacing low-income people, it will be destroying one of the most valuable assets it has. With the with the local area planning process that's underway, do you do you have concerns that this process could wrap up, and yet a lot of the damage of bringing um, much higher income people into the neighborhood will already be done, and so preserving and maintaining uh, that low-income community and um, the strength in that low-income community, um, a lot of that will be lost by the time that this planning process concludes? There's that concern, yes. And then the other one is that even after the conclusion of it, council will do nothing to preserve the low-income community or to get more social housing to replace the SROs, even though that's its policy. Something We just haven't seen any indication from them that they care about getting housing for uh, homeless people. They get shelters, but they're not getting housing. They're congratulating themselves on their housing plan, even though the number of homeless people has gone up. Uh, and it's just undermining their ability to get the funds from senior governments that we need for social housing. There's been an absence of any talk of social housing from this um, this municipal government, Vision Vancouver. Do you have? Are you at all optimistic that there will be demands from 
the local government under uh, Vision Vancouver for uh, social housing in the neighborhood? Well, once in a while you'll hear them toss out a phrase that it's needed, but there's not a concentrated campaign, which is what we need. And obviously the the social housing coalition, um, which the Carnegie Community Action Project has been um, one of the um, most active partners in establishing um, and Eugene Swanson as a as one of the founders of that coalition, um, how does this tie into to issues in the downtown east side? Um, well, um, it looks like the federal and provincial governments are in the process of ending ongoing social housing programs. Uh, there's only the odd little driven drab of money for social housing nowadays, and it's all for supportive housing, not just for regular social housing for low-income people. So my theory is that unless we can revive social housing during this next election, it'll, it'll be history, which will be really bad because we have the most expensive housing in the world next to second most expensive next to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But Hong Kong at least has 50% social housing, and we have just a pittance of social housing. So it will leave low-income people um, in, in the lurch, basically homeless and in really terrible housing, unless governments bring back social housing programs. Canada is the only country in the G8 that doesn't have a national social housing program. Going back to Chinatown and the downtown. Hold on for a second. For sure. Go ahead. Over the last two months, we've seen um, a number of rezonings uh, coming to council uh, with recommendation um, for approval from planning staff. The 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 number of years that you've been working in the downtown east side, Jean, is is this um, the extent and the pace at which? these condo uh, applications are coming to council. Uh, is this... Um, it's unprecedented. Uh, unprecedented is, I guess, the word I'm looking for, yeah. And and there's ostensibly an interim rezoning policy in place to hold them off during the local area plan, and it's still unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Why do you in think... In my experience, yeah. anyway. Why do you think it's... Um, been so the pace has been so quick with these applications because the city has signaled its willingness to give developers more profits in the downtown east side and they're all chomping at the bit to collect Mm -hmm. would you what what are some of this what are some of the solutions or ways to address this um at this point in time considering that a number of these have already been passed. Yeah, well, the people have to give the city the political will to use zoning to stop gentrification. So, for example, in the downtown Eastside Oppenheimer area, in 1982, there was a zoning that said any new development that goes in there has to have 20% social housing. Well, that needs to get raised to 30% at least, or 100%, we'd like. 
to stop condos from going into that area so that it can still be a place, so there still be some land for social housing. We need um, rules like that in other areas, sub-areas of the downtown east side too, like the Hastings Corridor and, Hast- and Thornton Park. They should be at least 70% social housing. And while that won't get a social housing at first, it will stop the condos and preserve the land so that when senior governments do uh, have social ho- have funds for social housing, there'll be a place to put it. We also need the city to buy land for social housing. They haven't bought any in at least three years. And meanwhile, the price has been doing nothing but going up. Um, so they need to buy the land. Then, of course, we need the province to bring in rent control and the SROs. It's based on the unit, not the person, so that people won't be pushed out of SROs with rent increases. And we need higher welfare rates so people can afford to eat and also to pay more for rent. And we need a federal provincial housing program that that builds 10,000 units of social housing a year in B.C. I last year spoke to... um uh, to Wendy Peterson um, about the viaducts and or the the proposal to to tear down the viaducts um, that run through Chinatown and mm-hmm. that's Park area yeah and I'm just wondering where um, where you think that's heading it's it hasn't yet come back to council um, but it it went through a sort of consultation process. Um, where do you think that's headed? Headed, and do you think it's? Do you think well, that's? It's city is, owned, yeah, yeah. it's city-owned land. There are a couple blocks of city-owned land. So what would be best would be if they could use that land for social housing. But what I suspect is that they'll sell it to developers to pay for the demolition of the viaducts. Right. And so we'll end up with condos there instead of social housing. Right. I guess one of the one of the most stark things about gentrification is the way that it it pits middle class people against low income people, and okay. I just want to ask you to reflect on ways in which um, people that are middle class um, and have maybe have the ability to purchase condos in the city, um, but are are feeling the pressure of a market that is increasingly out of reach. Can you reflect on why why middle class people should care about um, gentrification and, and what's going on in Chinatown and the downtown east side? Well, for one thing, it could be them. A lot of people who are homeless say it doesn't discriminate. All you need is one bout of mental illness or physical illness, and it's, it's you, right? Um, another reason is... Uh, Equality helps us all. When there's more equality, um, there's a lot fewer social problems. There's all kinds of research that shows this. And um, another is if people have decent homes, um, it actually costs taxpayers less in terms of health and policing and education. and, you know, if if the government brought in decent policies, there wouldn't be this um, opposition between people uh, because there would be clear rules that would protect 
low-income people from displacement and middle-income people and business owners and developers wouldn't go in there and displace people, right? So in a sense, it's the government's responsibility to put in those rules in order to prevent the clashes. Council has also uh, changed uh, bylaws to allow artist studios in all industrial zoned land. Um, does the Carnegie Community Action Project have a position on that decision? Well, artists are sometimes the first rate wave of gentrification. What we'd like to see is social housing and artist space for the low-income artists that are in the community now. Gene, mm-hmm. I, I just have one last question, and it is just the way that that Chinatown is looking these days, and it's looking uh, more akin to parts of Yale Town than uh, the downtown east side. And I'm just wondering if um, if Chinatown is being remade in a way that is uh, meant to replicate a neighborhood like Yale Town. Um, well, it looks like it's 17-story towers, 17-story condo towers. There's one public hearing this week and another one next week. That's what they're going for. This is going to look much like Chinatown. Yeah. It's another aspect of it. Any final thoughts before I let you go? Well, anything people can do to get city council to slow down the gentrification until we can get some funds for social housing, that's what we desperately need. Okay. Um, and okay. thank you so much for your time. Okay, you're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. A clearly frustrated Gene Swanson. Perhaps you've heard of the recent anti-gentrification protests outside the High End Pigeon restaurant adjacent Pigeon Park, one of the primary outdoor gathering spaces for the low-income community. Activists are challenging the increasingly rapid pace of gentrification occurring in the neighborhood, the appropriateness of a luxury restaurant serving foie gras, liver of a duck, and serving plates of $5 pickles amid severe poverty. Moreover, low-income residents and advocates are challenging the poverty voyeurism in which wealthy patrons can gaze onto Pigeon Park through the restaurant's large viewing windows. And yet, this is, the, this is only one of the many high-end restaurants and boutiques opening up against a backdrop of poverty, addiction and mental health issues, and acute housing need. The notion of starting a conversation, as the owner of Pigeon claims, has been ongoing for some time now. But that conversation has been going like this. The downtown east side has long been calling for the city and the province to enforce building maintenance standards for social housing and SRO units that are falling apart and have been and they have been calling for the growing need for more social housing to address growing homelessness and poverty made more acute by an increasingly developer-driven planning agenda and the seeming unwillingness to say no to more condos. And yet so-called social mix emerges as the desired solution in our neoliberal times, accompanied by benevolent businesses throwing a few crumbs of charity to the poor, as we see with Mark Brand's Save on Meats token program, 
literally tokenizing the poor. Rather than private acts of limited charity and arguments for social mix, simply a thinly veiled attempt to make gentrification and displacement socially and politically palatable, the city needs to enforce existing bylaws and respect an increasingly precarious low-income community faced with rising property values, speculation, and rising rents. $6 pickles, $15 cocktails, and the wealthy rubbing shoulders with the poor for the sheer thrill is not social justice. Rather than engaging in the language of poor bashing, of which Gene Swanson so eloquently contests, poor bashing with pathologizes poverty and low-income people, rather, we need to realize that poverty exists and is directly related to the loss of living wage jobs in the region, deinstitutionalization and the closure of mental health facilities, the end of federal and provincial support for cooperative and social housing programs, and the neoliberal rise of corporate welfare through declining tax rates for the wealthiest and a city beholden to developers and their campaign contributions. While Pigeon may serve as a flashpoint for the high-end colonization of a working-class and low-income neighborhood, the restaurant remains only one part of a larger struggle against gentrification and the displacement of low-income community members. These processes are not limited to the downtown east side. They are the result of real estate capital looking for its next fix. The details may be different, but the stories are the same in New York's Soho, New York's Lower East Side, Brooklyn's Williamsburg, Philadelphia's Society Hill, Seattle's Capitol Hill, Boston's Beacon Hill, North Portland, Toronto's Liberty Village, San Francisco's Mission District, London's East End, the list goes on. But importantly, gentrification affects all of us. It is not confined to the downtown east side. It is increasingly affecting the neighborhoods of Main Street, Commercial Drive, Strathcona, and Hastings Sunrise, as middle-class households find themselves unable to afford housing in an increasingly wealthy, yet highly polarized and overpriced city. And until we choose to actively engage, discuss, and challenge gentrification, speculation, and high-end development, the question of affordable housing will only become more acute for us all. Gentrification is everyone's struggle. I'm Andy Longhurst, and this is The City. There'll be three white horses All in a line There'll be three white horses In a line Three white horses When you go
born in Kingston, Jamaica in 1959. After studying in Italy, Clark graduated with honors from the Ontario College of Art. His work attempts to encourage black creativity and claims that Canadian women have displayed more strength than men in community ordeals. Clark is a two-time recipient of the A.J. Casson Award, presented each year for outstanding achievement in watercolor painting. This PSA was brought to you in support of Black History Month on CITR 101.9 FM. Here at CITR, we're... Mutant nocturnal, vital consuming animals drifting easy through friendly space. And we're... The villains. And... Nardward a human serviette from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We're... Dark space punctuated by planets. And we're... Patrick Swayze. And we're... God, the devil, hell, heaven! Do you understand? Finally! But CITR is not a... Commercial radio station which means we need the help of listeners like you. Donate to CITR's 2013 Fund Drive, February 28th to March 8th. Our goal is to raise $30,000 to help purchase new soundboards for all three studios. To donate, call 604-822-8648. That's 604-822-8648. Or go online to citr.ca. And thanks for supporting Community Radio. The Study and Go Abroad Fair is proud to support CITR's fund drive from February 26th to March 8th. The fair is a great opportunity for anyone considering studying, volunteering, working, or traveling abroad. Exhibitors will include universities from around the world and student travel organizations. The Study and Go Abroad Fair happens Tuesday, March 5th from 3pm to 7pm in the East Ballroom of the Vancouver Convention Centre. All visitors will also be entered in a grand draw with prizes including a trip on Air Canada, a volunteer trip in Nicaragua or Nepal, and an iPad. CITR will also be doing a live broadcast from the fair with interviews, demos, and more. For more information, go to studyandgoabroad.com. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and always available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And be sure to follow The City on Twitter with the handle thecity__fm. And you can also find the program on Facebook by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. And now we're going to go into the second part of the show. In 1978, Festival Cinemas was founded, um, and one of those founders was Leonard Shine. And just recently, Festival Cinemas um, has been sold to Cineplex Entertainment. 
and um, marks uh, the loss of yet another independent arts and, and cultural and uh, cinema house in the city. And uh, just recently caught up um, with Leonard Shine uh, to talk about um, why Festival uh, was sold to Cineplex and uh, really what this means for um, the film-going community within the city and uh, more broadly the cultural fabric as well. So I want to first ask you, um, why the sale to Cineplex? Well, they, I have confidence that they've got the experience and financial resources to keep the, the theaters going for the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been doing this for 35 years and uh, um, 65 this year, so it was time to retire and wanted to sell it to some company that I wouldn't have to worry about them going bankrupt and being able to keep the leases going. Mm-hmm. Now, as you mentioned, you've been in this business for a while. Um, what have you learned um, from from being in, from being in it and and seeing the changes um, occur around you within the the landscape of independent theaters and uh, just the way that the film industry generally uh, works these days? Um, what what would you say? sort of characterizes it these days? Well, uh, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for a single-screen theater to exist anymore. The cost of, of um, operating them, plus the landlord who owns the property can, um, since they take up a large space, can make more money by tearing them down and putting condos there, and that's not only true in Vancouver, but pretty well every urban city in North America. The single-screen theaters are have basically disappeared and will continue to disappear. Um, multiplexes have proven to be a, a better financial model, both for the landlord who owns the building and for the tenant who, who rents the, the space from the, from the landlord to, who operates that movie theater. Um, so that's one big change. The second big change is new technology. Um, the digital technology and the internet technology need for ticket sales and um, concession and all of that is way more expensive <laughs> than the old technology of, of film and of of um, of ticket sales, so that once whoever operates theaters is going to have to every year spend more money to keep up with technology. It's like when you have a computer and everything gets outdated in a few years and you need a new one, whereas in the past you didn't need to replace anything. Now, is that a so, pre- yeah? Is that a pressure from from moviegoers, or is that more of a pressure of the industry around you? Uh, it's mainly the industry, but you know, if if the other theaters all have the latest in terms of 3D and you don't, but, you know, they uh, moviegoers are going to want to see that, or they read about the new this or that, uh, you know, the new sound system, the you know, the special Dolby digital sound system, the extra stuff people want it, but it's mainly initiated by the industry, mm-hmm. where they've required you to upgrade the technology, but also in terms of being customer-friendly, 
in terms of your internet stuff. You want people to be able to put things on their smartphone and um, all that costs extra money. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not free to, you know, the when people do print at home tickets, it costs extra for you to get the software to do it and then get the hardware, the scanners and all the things. So um, it's way more expensive to operate a theater now than it used to be in the past because of the technology just keeps on requiring you to spend more money to keep up with it. Now, do you I mean, for, for yeah. example, we spent, you know, over half a million dollars upgrading um, to a digital projection system. Our, our Vista system cost a quarter of a million dollars to put in that Vista tech, you know, um, system, and then every year you pay $50,000 in maintenance mm-hmm. to keep it and to license it. So, um, before you had that, it was cheap. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's a lot more financial pressures to operate movie theaters now because of technology than it was in the past, and a lot more financial pressures because of property taxes, for example, or are on a big space as, as commercial areas get assessed at higher value, the tenant ends up paying that, that extra property tax. I want to, before we talk about property taxes and property values, I want to ask you if, if um, what we're seeing in Vancouver um, is similar across um, other Canadian cities. We've lost a number of, uh, we've lost the Granville 7, we've lost um, the, the, the Van East, we've lost, um, what are the, the Oak other? Ridge, Oak Ridge. The Denman, the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the Ridge. Uh, the fine arts, the Vogue, the right. Family, the, so the list uh, goes go on. Starlight, uh, yes. Is uh, this is this the same story? It's the same story right across North America. Okay. So no, Vancouver's not unique on that. I I do want to ask you. Certainly, rent in the city is um, for commercial spaces, as you mentioned, is not cheap. How is that to be addressed, and and is um, our ro- rising property values really killing the heart and soul of Vancouver? Well, it, I mean, it used to be addressed. Uh, at one time, the provincial government had a cap on what you could be charging commercial properties in the municipality, and that cap was three times what you would charge residential. But in the early 80s, the um, provincial government took that cap off of municipalities, allowing them to charge whatever they wanted to charge. And so the municipalities, because they get voted in by residents, there's a lot more, way more residents than there are businesses, um, decided to not raise the property tax of residents, but to raise it of commercial properties. So um, that what it used to be three times the rate, Currently, it's 4.8 times the rate. Um, so one thing the province could do would be put a cap back on it, three times the, the rate, which would help. Another thing the city could do is just have a different rate for um, commercial property that's culturally um, entertainment or culture or um Nonprofit groups to encourage mm-hmm. those type of things, mm-hmm. uh, because very few of the people that operate in the culture industry actually own the property, but mm-hmm. yet they pay 
the taxes, whereas in residential, most people own the property that they, whether it be a condo or a house or a townhouse, they actually own it, but they're paying the taxes on it, so they have a certain benefit from increased value, whereas a commercial tenant doesn't own the property and he pays the tax regardless, and it's the property owner who gains from the um, um, the increase in value, not the tenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, one uh, one method of addressing this is um, would be similar to land banking for for residential um, property um, to prevent rising rents or keep it uh, somewhat affordable. Could land banking or some alternative form of tenure be applied also to commercial and and cultural spaces as well? Uh, yeah, no, but you know that would be a, a city decision. Mm-hmm. Now, how open do you think city the city is to some of these suggestions? Do you think it's getting to a point where it's? I don't think they're ready yet. I mean, certainly they're doing that with housing right now. They're doing bending over backwards to increase rental housing and below-market housing, but I don't think they've felt that the cultural industries are in the same need as as housing, so um, they haven't done that yet. And just recently, um, um, Vision Vancouver uh, decided they would um, do a a citywide mapping of all the cultural amenities and assets across the city. Do you think um, that's a a good step forward? Yeah, no, that is a good step forward. And if I could ask you how you would characterize Vancouver's arts and culture scene, you've seen, obviously, a lot of change over the years that you've been um, running festival. Where do you think, well, first of all, where do you think arts and culture in Vancouver, um, where is that at, and, and potentially where is it going? Well, I think what usually happens when the horse has gone out of the barn, then people are missing the horse. Um, it's, um, I mean, I think there is pressure now when, you know, after the playhouse, um, you know, went out of business and, um, you know, the Ridge and the uh, Waldorf Hotel, you know, I think politicians are starting to to look at it. Um they in the past have done some things. Um, it, some of it uh, requires a willing property owner or, or developer. Um, they, for example, uh, where Van City Theater is, they made a deal with the developer there to to build the Van City Theater for free, put equipped it 100% for free, and for the developer to pay rent for 20 years on the space that. The film festival doesn't have to do it in exchange. They gave the developer extra density. Um, they did the same thing with the York Theater and Commercial. They gave the, the developer their um, extra density on an, another site, and they're you know they're restoring the York Theater and turning it over to the um, cultural center, the the Van East, uh, cultural center to operate. So the city does has done things in the past and um, in both those situations there were nonprofit groups and so they're set up to help nonprofit groups um, the, the playhouse was a nonprofit group but of course the space where they had their financial difficulty was in the city owned space because they 
mainly one of the main problems was they had the a union contract that the city negotiated, which made it so expensive for them to operate compared to the arts club or any of the other um, competing theaters that weren't in city-owned space. Um, they could have, for example, um, the city uh, not negotiated uh, ridiculous contracts with, with IATSE there, and um, that would have helped the Playhouse more than anything. Uh, but they don't yet have a policy on helping things like you know, the Ridge or the Waldorf, which are not nonprofit groups. They're um, regular corporations running those operations. So, I mean, yeah, we, we seem to be getting at this point where the city can only do so much uh, for nonprofits, and some would argue not enough is happening. Um, but when it starts to, when, when we start to see independent businesses unable to um, exist in the city because rents are too high or they just they can't pay their employees and and operate we reach a point where it's not perhaps not <laughs> not feasible for the city to step in i mean this is the story of the waldorf um certainly a a, a business venture that it's not really the place for the city to step in but um it starts to look pretty bad when not even when for-profit uh arts and culture ventures can't even stay in business. Yeah, and that's why I think the city has to look at it, and they're doing their cultural mapping, and I think they have to look at their property taxes, and that's one thing they've been refusing to look at, And because if they charge less property taxes for some, for some industry, that means residents are going to have to pay more, but... But it's spread upon around the whole city. That might cost each resident five dollars to their property taxes, <laughs> and, and they seem to resist that five dollar charge because they know when the city, um, the current government, um, for a number of years, changed transferred one percent of the property tax from commercial class to residential. Mm-hmm. Cause it, it got up to six times, and now they've got down to four point eight times what it costs the average uh, resident household in Vancouver was $35 a year. And that's the change, you know, a whole percentage from all the commercial property taxes. So my guess is if you were changing, you know, this cultural industries, you'd probably be 10 cents or less than a dollar per resident. Mm-hmm. But they still seem to be very reluctant to deal with the property tax issue. Do you th- just going back to uh, the amenities and and getting those um, amenities out of developers? Do you think this is the Vancouver model of of building uh, community amenities and um, exacting something out of development? Do you think that arrangement um, becomes part of the problem as the city becomes increasingly dependent on development for those community amenities, or do you think? Uh, there's a place where this can can serve its need, but also not create a dependency. Well, I think it can serve a need without creating a dependency, because not all developers want it or do it. I mean, the the developer of the Ridge Theater Cressy Developments didn't want any any bonusing or anything because they didn't want to do any amenities. So, not all developers want it. Um, so it's um, it's, I think, and you know, I mean, those 
amenities aren't just, as you know, cultural things. It's everything from playgrounds to park space and everything that they they get from developers. Um, it means the developer, of course, has to pay more money, which means he charges more for housing, and that's why housing is more expensive. Um, but a lot of, I think, the city makes it expensive for developers to develop anything. It's a long, you know, it takes a year or two to get anything through the city. It's a, I know when Fifth Avenue got built, it was over a two-year process to rechange the zoning here so Fifth Avenue could be built because it was manufacturing zoning, and it, you have to go through all sorts of things to change it to go with the commercial that it got changed to. And the city engineers wanted seven levels of underground parking. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we're below sea level. And, you know, so we paid for two of the, the the owner of the property, not us as tenants, paid for two parking studies, which showed you only needed two levels. And the, and the engineers wouldn't budge. They budged the sixth <laughs> level. So we had to go to City Hall to overturn the engineers, but it just took up more time, which yeah. cost the developer more money to sit on the property. It was a two-year process. So I think the city makes development expensive. Um, we hear that the city is pro-development, but actually they're not. They're, they're pro-development in the sense that they may approve things, but they end up costing the developer so much extra, he has to charge whoever buys the property so much extra. So I think if the city could a way to speed up their red tape and approve things more quickly, actually everything could be cheaper that developers would develop. Mm -hmm. If the city didn't require so much parking on their spaces, the developer wouldn't, it wouldn't be as expensive. I know I was talking to the guy who runs Vija's um, mm -hmm. Vikram, and he's opening up a new restaurant on Camby and 15th, and the city wanted 55 parking spaces. Well, it's impossible. <laughs> Totally, I mean, no one will build the restaurant. So finally, they, you know, he had to appeal it and everything, and I think it got down to 18 or something. But, um, and that's right on the Canada line. I mean, yeah, it's like yeah. ridiculous. But yeah. I, I think the city is the biggest problem, hmm. personally, with all their red tape. They make it so expensive, and people wonder why it's so expensive to buy anything. Well, the city adds a lot to that cost. Do you think it? a lot of it has to go through like an urban design panel. Uh, it also has to go through engineering. Do yep, you think yep. it's collectively all of this or do you think it's, um, it's a collectively all of yeah. it? It's, <laughs> okay. You need so many different departments. You know, we have to go through fire safety, you have to go through engineering, you go through design panel, you go through development boards, you go through, I mean, everybody. <laughs> and they all want their, each wants their own little things that they want. I think engineering is the worst because they want always so much parking because all yeah. these engineers got trained in parking. Yeah. <laughs> and and they should allow way less parking because we want to move away from all the cars. And if a business makes too few parking, they'll go out of business and the person who built it will lose. So let the market decide how much parking is needed. I mean, you got to remember the Stanley has zero parking, the Vogue had zero parking, mm -hmm. the, you know, Park has zero parking. All these theaters survived for many years with zero parking. Yeah. What's happening with the Ridge? Um, well, it's going to be torn down yeah. the whole shopping center, and they're doing four levels of condos and a supermarket below. And with specifically with the the finishings of the Ridge, 
I assume some of those. Oh, yeah, I've been able to find homes find home. for a lot of things. Yeah. You know, for, yeah, for most of the things we've been finding homes for, the seats are the ones we're having the biggest problem right now, but we've pretty well found homes for everything else. Wonderful. And I also want to ask you, with the Park Theater, um, are we likely to see, obviously, Cineplex has given their word to operate it, um, but are you... Are you optimistic that that neighborhood theater uh, will remain <laughs> for the foreseeable future? Well, I think it will from Cineplex's standpoint, whether the, the property owner, you know, decides to redevelop it at some point and put condos there, then, of course, you know, it won't exist. But um, I think when the city upzones that stretch of Camby, there'll be a lot of buildings torn down and, and put up high-rises. The city has indicated it wants the increased density on Canby because of the Canada Line. Right. Now they haven't they haven't done that yet where the park is, but whether they do it this year or next year or five years from now, at some point they will upzone that whole area. And when that happens, I think the property owner will sell it to a developer. Mm-hmm. So, but Cineplex is in the business to make money, and as long as they're making money, they're not going to close the theater. I mean, it was Empire that closed the Granville Seven and the Oak Ridge. So now we're left with the the Vancouver International Film Center, the Van City Theater, Pacific Cinematheque, and the Rio. Are those the three, if I'm not mistaken, that will remain independent in the city? Well, there's also the Dunbar. The Dunbar, that's correct, yeah. And there's the Collingwood Theater. Collingwood, yeah. That's for the people who used to run the Denman. Right. So I think those those would be it. And will will there be places? The Rio is yeah. not a full time movie theater. Right, right. It's more live stuff than movies. So if people want to catch films that they would have seen at at um, at festival, we assume that they'll still be able to see them at Fifth Avenue as well. Oh yeah, going yeah, forward. Yeah, no, I would I would think uh, Cineparks would keep running the same type of films that we play, just because um, they're successful and they'll keep their big Hollywood blockbusters on at the Scotiabank like mm-hmm. they do now because that theater is very, very popular. So, Leonard, what's next for you? I don't know. Um, Cineplex just signed the deal on Friday. I signed it on Wednesday, and so um, I don't know what's next. But okay. I'm, I'm sure I'll find some things that, will, uh, that I'll be interested in doing. I'm, I'm not worried at all. Okay. Well, thank you, and appreciate your time. And um, we, we, uh, yeah, hope to hope to see more independent films at at uh, Fifth Avenue and Park moving forward. But thank you for your time and all that you've done. Leonard Shine, co-owner of Festival Cinemas, which has recently announced that it will be selling uh, the remaining Park Theater and Fifth Avenue uh, theaters to Cineplex Entertainment. And this uh, concludes The City. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, You've been listening on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And if you missed any portion of this or you like what you heard, check out thecityfm.org. And if you're tuning in live on CITR 101.9 FM, you've got Flex Your Head coming up next at 6 p.m., 
And if you're tuning in on CJSF syndicated on Fridays from 10 to 11, you've got Democracy Now! coming up next at 11 a.m. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions.